The 20s of the 21st century have got off to quite a poor and turbulent start. We are living through a cataclysmic moment in history. For nearly the past 12 months, the way we all live our lives has been turned upside down. Home working, home education, e-commerce, online retailing and telemedicine have been propelled in adoption and has effectively been the glue that has held society together. Here's to be a light now at the end of the tunnel. And history shows us that any times of severe societal upheaval, there follows a period of technological innovation, creativity and economic prosperity. Is a new era of the Roaring Twenties about to begin? Welcome to The Great Indoors, a podcast series designed to talk about technological advancements in these turbulent times. I'm your host, Matt Roberts, and joining me is my producer and co-pilot, Larissa Yee. Now, this is the first episode of The Great Indoors 2021, and I'm excited, proud, really amazed to invite our first guest, Mr. Shelley Palmer. Shelley has been named LinkedIn's top voice in technology. And Shelley is the CEO of the Palmer Group, a consulting practice that helps Fortune 500 companies around the world with technology, media, and marketing. He is the co-host of the Think About This with Shelley Palmer and Ross Martin podcast. And he covers tech and business for Good Day New York, writes a column for Adweek, and he's a regular commentator on CNN and CNBC. Shelley, welcome to The Great Indoors. Thank you. Great to be here. So the first question, as many of you know, that I like to ask our guests is, um, where are you uh, enjoying The Great Indoors today? <laughs> I'm in, uh, in the shadow of the Empire State Building in New York City, Midtown. Chilly here today and here in exile, it's awesome. I, I tell you what's amazing, uh, and, for, and for those listeners of ours that are not in... Uh, uh, New York or the United States. Shelley appears on uh, Good Day New York every week and, and posts uh, the footage uh, to, to his webpage. But looking at you here, it feels like I'm actually in an episode of, of Good, Good Day New York. And I know, you know, everybody's been working from home uh, and doing everything they have to do from home for the last uh, 12 months. But there's been a lot of self-innovation, uh, a lot of uh, creativity in people adapting their environment uh, at home to support their their work and to support uh, their education or, or whatever it is they're doing, but I have to say you you've got an amazing home setup, Shelley. It's 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 truly uh, awesome, and uh, I know you gave uh, an introduction to it at your CES Innovation Summit last week. So maybe we could start there. Maybe uh, you could walk us through or talk us through that uh, home recording studio setup you have? So first of all, I've been in the television business for my entire career. I went to film school at NYU. I was in the Emmy organization forever. I was president of the Emmys in New York. I've been literally working in the TV business since I got out of college. And this was like heaven for me. I was locked in a room and could not get out. 
And the only way to communicate with the outside world was to set some video up. And I was like, wow, you know, for the last 30 years, I wanted to, you know, put together like a really cool home video studio. I always had a great audio studio because I, the way I got in the TV business as a composer, producer, music for um, TV shows and, and advertising. But while the pandemic is absolutely awful and, and it's tragic at every level, there one little tiny, if you can even call it that silver lining, was I had a lot of time on my hands and I, there was no place to go. I was like, what are you going to do? Okay, I'm going to go deep into how to make the most efficient most insanely cool home video studio and and craft a rig that I could run on my own because I didn't have the luxury of having people around to run it. So that's where we are. You know, good audio, good video, good control. We have all kinds of bells and whistles. We have every kind of wipes between the cameras and sound effects and just, you know, fun for the whole family. Now that's amazing. It's it's really an incredible setup you you know you've got there. And it got me thinking, well, it gets me thinking, Shelley, that since everybody has been at home, self-innovating, uh, like you've done, like I've done in, in, in some instances as well, we've almost become a new category of individuals. We've become enterprise consumers. What I mean there is our expectations about the service that we demand and pay for from our service provider is much higher than ever before. The hardware that we deploy in uh, our home environments, uh, we pay a lot more attention to uh, and we treat it a, a lot more seriously than we've ever done before. And what I'm going to do just to introduce that concept more is our CMO, Gil Rosen, actually talking uh, about the enterprise consumer and what it means. This is a person much like ourselves at home, but actually consuming enterprise services. So the level of quality that I need, the security of the, you know, my network is now critical, right? If I'm a developer working on a production environment and I need access to sensitive information or latency, I, I don't get that from my home broadband user uh, network. And I think 5G in that sense can actually create a new use cases where we have over the top networks. So I have my home broadband provided by whomever, and then my enterprise, um, my, my, the company I work for can actually be the provider of an over-the-top network in my home, uh, not by wire, but by wireless, and 5G is, is one use case, uh, providing me with latency, with security, with quality of service in a, in a completely new use case that didn't exist before. So I think the home will become a very interesting domain where consumer and enterprise services collide, and this new persona, this enterprise consumer, will create a lot of, I think, new business opportunities. I think given that, I think it's an amazing new category. But when life does return to normal, that home studio that you've created, that self-innovation that we've all executed ourselves in, in, in our home, will exist. It will carry on. It will be permanent. You're not going to scrap or tear down your home studio uh, as soon as... Um, the conditions surrounding the pandemic have ended, right? So I, I think you're right. My suspicion, Scott Kirby, the CEO of United Airlines, doesn't think his travel business comes back to 2019 levels till 2024. Let's say he's mostly right. Next year, you're going to see 25, 35% reduction in business travel. And the reason 
that you're going to see that is because of what we're doing right now. But everybody's got the capacity. I mean, CES just ended the number one story in laptops was smartphone quality cameras. That used to be a pejorative statement, a smartphone quality camera. Now, a laptop with a five megapixel camera and decent audio is a requirement to do business. So just to take it personally, I, I'm on, I sit on a bunch of boards. I have a bunch of clients in London and I am generally on a in, a in a client paid for first class airplane seat once every four to six weeks to London. They're generally one or two or three day jaunts. British Airways, Delta Airlines, uh, they work together. You can go on a couple of other airlines to buy a seat up front in one of those planes in 2019 was anywhere between six and $12,000 each way. So that put one client who brings me in four times a year at almost $100,000 between car services, hotels, and airplanes to get me there four times a year for a one-day meeting. There's no version of this planet where that's going to happen next year because we've this year had three meetings like, you know, just like this on Zoom and they were totally happy to do it. They'll bring me in once. And the other board members too, because everybody's going to sing Kumbaya. We're all going to get together. We'll all break bread, have a meal, hang out, do it. But they're not going to bring me in four times a year. That's next year. And well, okay. Or this year and next year. So let's say that's still, we're in the throes of the pandemic. But as that dissipates, the ROI on bringing everyone together, me blowing two days on either side of that trip, you know what shape you're in when you, and you know, the jet lag going transatlantic and you have to travel at night and you blow the whole day and like, oh my goodness, why? Literally for four hours that I can, I'd rather get up at four o'clock in the morning here. It's nine o'clock in the morning there. I would much rather get up at 4 a.m., go right on Zoom, be in a four hour meeting. And so I'll have, you know, I'll sleep it off the next night. That's not, it's different than losing two days of productivity on a trip to London. That's going to be replicated everywhere. And so we will never go back to whatever people think normal was because you can't, take away the capabilities I have to save the time and money. I'm not saying I don't want to go to London. I love London. I don't say I want to sit in a boardroom. I like doing that too. And there's no substitute for just going to a pub at 5.30 in the evening with your friends in the UK. Nothing like it. It's a thing we don't do in the States. We, we go to the bar on Thursday <laughs> night maybe, or afterwards you go take someone out for a drink. But there is a cultural thing. And, and you know, you talk about stuff that's not business then. And, that's going to still happen. Of course, it's going to still happen. I don't know if someone's going to fly me first class overseas to do it. And if they don't fly me first class overseas to do it, I'm such a little prince, I'm not going to go. So it's like, okay, I'm not sitting in the back. I would much rather do a Zoom or not be on your board. At this point in my life, I, this is just where it is. So I have choices. Other people don't have choices. I, I'm not trying to turn this into like a, a some kind of weird 1% business travel thing. I'm just saying, if somebody's used to paying for you to take car service and charge them for an airplane ticket and they're going to pay for a day or two days of your time to do something. If you can do it online, you're going to do it online. Not all of it, but enough of it. Now here's the part you need to think about. Let's say that I am totally wrong and that it's only 25% of business travel. Call it 20%, not even 25%. 80% of what we used to do comes back because people just want it. They're humans, they're social animals. They want to do it. It's just a 20% reduction. What does that follow on to the guy at Hudson News who I buy the books and magazines from and the little snickety snacks before I get on the plane and 
I know the guy at, at, at Terminal 8 at American, like at the Hudson News when you walk in there. I know the guy so well that when my, it, literally in 2006, when my first book came out, I insisted that I bring the books in a cart to this particular guy because he runs the, cons- I, that's how much I was on American Airlines back in 2006. And, and in 2019, same guy is there and I'm not going to see him. So I don't know if he still has a job, but if only 20% of me not getting gas on the way to the airport, me not picking up breakfast when I'm in the airport, me not like, wow, what does that do to everybody? Just 20%. And if it's 25 or 30%, the the businesses will adapt. There will be clear winners and clear losers, but there's also going to be this massive behavior change. And the technology empowers that in a pretty significant way. And I can't imagine a CFO at any organization not asking for real ROI calculations on why you are sending three of you on an airplane. I, I see this coming because it's happening now and it's guaranteed to continue. It's guaranteed. So you raise um, a couple of interesting points there, Shelley, for sure. Uh, I think the first one is um, I also miss British pubs uh, quite massively. It's been a long time since I've been in one. Uh, so I'm with you on that. But the second one, you know, we have been, we, we don't travel. Uh, I used to travel frequently like yourself all over the world from one week to the next. And I think when we, we got into this new paradigm of, of, of being at home, um, it was great, you know, as far as spending um, the time that you do uh, with your family and that work-life balance ele- element and being there all the time for them. I've got to be honest, I'm, I'm itching to get back out there. I'm itching to see people physically, to, to visit new places, to, to look people in the eye and shake their hand and, 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 and speak to them. So that, you know, that element I, I, I miss and, and it may not return in, in all instances. Now, you used to travel to London a lot, uh, but this helps us switch gears now to think about Las Vegas. And of course, it was CES last week, um, the annual consumer electronics show from Las Vegas. I know that you attended it virtually. I, I watched your uh, CES Innovation Summit. You must miss Las Vegas. You must miss physically being there at the event. Sure. I, I Look, I love to complain about Las Vegas because I have the luxury of being there 10 weeks a year. And at a certain point, it's my home away from home. It's a, CS is the biggest trade show in Las Vegas, but it's not the only one. I love to complain about Vegas because, you know, let's face it, the familiarity breeds contempt. What can I tell you? But I, I would have loved to have been there this week. I miss it desperately. Most importantly, I the dear, dear friends I have who work in Las Vegas, who are part of the hospitality industry, we're, we're hoping that it all comes back, you know, at some level. It will, you know, look, every pandemic in history within about four years has dissipated due to herd immunity or the virus dying out uh, because of its uh, uh, either its lethality or herd immunity or some combination. It's no longer novel to humans. We have a lot better technology now. I know there's a lot of political controversy over vaccines and distribution and mask wearing, but ultimately, no matter how bad it is right now, and it's bad, in a year or two, this will dissipate. Unless some science fiction stuff happens where there's a weird variant of the virus or a mutation where it all happens again and you know some really terrible black swan event w- with another virus on top of this, a couple of years out, 
we're back to where we were. And the question is what the big question you got to ask yourself, Matt, is what's the new normal? Like which of these behaviors stay? What we were able to do at CES this year was unbelievable. It was the best product we've ever put out ever. Why? We weren't limited by where we could walk or traffic or who was displaying or not. I could talk to a leadership team at a major, one of our Fortune 500 clients. I would ask them, what are the strategic things you're trying to cover? Okay, great. We will put together a tech briefing and an online tour for you. This is what was at CES. This wasn't at CES. So Apple's never there, but uh, you, there are iPhones all around. Amazon generally doesn't have um, all of their stuff there. They'll have one little booth and then they'll be in hotel rooms making deals. I could show all the Amazon products in the context of the Google products, in the context Context of the uh, voice controlled uh, tool sets that everybody was using of theirs and of their competitors all to at the same time with no restriction as to what hall it was in, what the traffic was between the Venetian and, and the convention center. We, we were able to do our, our work at a level we've never done it. And that product will stand. And what, what made it possible was the fact that every single executive that would have taken our tour uh, on foot, every single one was able to sit at their desk and go online. They could join us and they could ask questions and from everywhere. So not only do we have the highest level of participation from senior leaders in businesses, because they could, right? Not everybody could get to CES or not everyone could get out of a meeting, but not they could do it live. And if they couldn't do it live, everyone got a recording of it and they got to hear their peers and they got to distribute it to their rank and file. This is a better product for knowledge transfer than we've ever been able to make in person for a 12 to 18 person leadership team in an, in an executive briefing uh, or a tech briefing at a live CES. We'll do it every year from now on because everyone's empowered to do it. So it changes how we do our business and what. So this new normal, in quotes, it's going to have a different kind of travel. It's going to have a different kind of knowledge transfer. It's going to have a different kind of sales behavior well, because we're empowered to do things differently. There's no way in the world that I'm going to not go back to restaurants and not go back to having salons every eight to 12 weeks for the last 35 years. Not being able to see people drives me crazy. We're going to get back to that. We're also going to have all these tools and all this muscle memory from all these capabilities we've just acquired. Hard, hard earned knowledge, Zoom fatigue, how to deal you know, at every level with, with uh, the accountability uh, Microsoft Teams takes every ounce of data that you generate. So you know there's going to be productivity metrics where people look at how many meetings did you make? How long were you on? Did you stare at the camera? Did you follow up? Like all of that now. It's the most invasive thing I've ever seen managerially. All oh, that's going to come out in the wash and we'll find a new way that we understand productivity in the workforce. We'll find a new way that we manage the work, not the people, because we've been people managers for a long time, and now we have to be managing work. And now with these specific online tools and the data they collect, we have ways to manage these groups we've never had before. This, this is some really interesting times for productivity and new management skills and new worker skills. It's a very So I, I think the new normal is going to be different enough, recognizable, but different enough. That's really interesting, Shin. And I'm, I'm, I'm probably skipping forward to what I wanted to talk about towards the end of, of this podcast. But what we've already discussed here is a, a complete paradigm change of the way we do events, the way we do business travel, and the frequency of that. And you know, some things have completely, completely changed forever. 
So when we look at this wave of self-innovation, the enterprise consumer, when we look at these changes to business travel and these productivity enhancements, then this could usher in potentially a golden age driven by swathes of innovation, driven by new technologies being you know, adapted quicker. These productivity enhancements that would feed their way through to a GDP increase and, and, and more prosperous, positive economic growth. So I think there's, there's something there that's extremely positive. But let's go back to, to CES and what you saw this year at CES from a, a consumer electronics perspective, from the gadgets and the gizmos that are on show there, how much of this this year was driven by these new paradigms, by this homeworking how much of that was already being shaped and manifested in those products? Everything you saw at CES from a major manufacturer was in the works at last CES, just was. And what they did, you can see where they slapped marketing jargon onto things. They made it pandemic tech as opposed to clean tech. They made it, you know, the, something that would have been in a sustainability category ended up in pandemic tech. So, you could see where everything was just adapted to to take advantage of the issues or to to function in the in the context of what we're all up against right now i think you're going to see some real advances in software and specifically software where ai models take over a lot of cognitive repetitive and a lot of cognitive non-repetitive tasks that we ordinarily suspected that white collar workers would do. And what I mean by that is AI is not going to take anybody's job. That's kind of a silly notion. It's going to cost people jobs. Very different. There, there's a concept in engineering. I'm sure you guys are, are familiar with a 10Xer, right? Everybody, it's a 10X engineer. 10x is just what you think it is. It's someone who's 10 times as good as a normal person. They charge three or four times as much, but they do 10 times more work. So actually they're cheaper. So you're paying somebody $30 an hour in some Eastern European block country, and they're working at 1x. You pay this person $250 an hour, and they do 10 times the work. And But more importantly, they do it at a speed that cannot, and an efficiency level that can't be matched. Now, there's a lot of writings about you put six 10Xers in a team and you don't have a team. You have six superstars all acting like individuals doing. Take all that out for a minute and just pretend that I had my regular team, but my team was 10 times as productive. That's kind of a weird concept that that level of productivity is going to increase that much. And there's simple ways to think about it. You have a junior art director. How do they become a senior art director? They work for a senior art director. For how long? I don't know, however long it takes. So what does that person do? Senior art director goes to a meeting. A senior executive says, hey, I need, I need an ad. The senior art director says, okay. A couple of days later, they come back with three concepts. The executive picks one. They go and they make it. Now I need 50 versions for the deliverables. I need it in every IAB standard size. I need a double truck for the last print magazine on earth. I need a 30-sheeter for a billboard. I need some digital assets for... 
I hand this off to my juniors. I said, kiddies, go make this stuff. And they bring them back to me. And one at a time, I will sit with that person and I will correct the work and they will learn. They will actually learn my aesthetic. They will learn tricks. They will learn what the wizened warrior knows that the young buck doesn't. And this kind of on-the-job training is invaluable. It, it Also, it's upward mobility for the younger workers. It's fantastic for the older workers. They get to see new ideas and steal them. Uh, the younger workers get to you know work long hours for low pay and feel they pay their deal. All kinds of things are wonderful there. Fast forward to right now, I'm a senior art director who's been spending my time and energy learning how to do what I actually do for a living. Now my executive approves the ad. I press one button and every deliverable version is made automatically. I correct the things I have to correct quickly in a few seconds and the AI model learns the aesthetic. There are no juniors. That is what is happening right now. Now, there are going to be people who need to learn to program those models, build the tools to make the, the, those models run on, patch the servers. There's plenty of other jobs or millions of other jobs, but job of, you know, apprentice art director, junior art director, mid-level art director, senior art director, that path, that apprenticeship path, that, that is an endangered species. And the productivity level of the people that know how to get this done over the people who don't, this is a unbelievable bifurcation brought to you by automation of every kind, whether it be AI or just straight RPA, you know, ro robotic process automation. All of this productivity increase is being forced by where we are right now. That takes me back, you know, to our first um, series of podcasts, and we talked about marketing and how marketing had been impacted. And the one thing that was very clear right after the pandemic hit and everybody went into lockdown was the TV commercials that came on board, particularly in North America. They were all the same. They were so homogenous in their messaging, their imagery. It was either the same agency uh, putting together the same brief for every single client or it was AI driven marketing it was an algorithm that said this is what people are feeling this is what people need to hear right now a lot of the language was reassurance and out came this outpouring of homogenous TV commercials uh, the creativity the individualism had gone from these TV commercials and it all appeared to be AI-driven. Now, I may be wrong. That may not have been the case. It may have been great minds think alike. But it certainly looked uh, like the marketing was all automated. And if you think through television ratings and you are an AI model and you are making a decision that you are 84% sure that there's a 62% chance that the person watching this ad is going to convert based on the metrics that you've asked for the conversion. People misunderstand television and misunderstand television ratings if they're not in the business. There's no such thing as the highest rated show on TV. There's no, no such thing as the best show on television. There's the best show against women, 1849. There's the best show against men, 1332. There's the best show against a heterogeneous audience mixed thusly who are... 150% uh, over-indexed on buying product X. Everything is scored. And so if you tell a model that you want to build a commercial that is going to give you the highest 
percentage likelihood to convert against a specific target. And the model's looking at the cor correlation, not the cause, the correlation of, again, I'm 79% sure that there's a 71% chance that if you these three things are true, this fourth thing will be true. You'll take that bet all day long. You'll stand in front of that slot machine all day long. It, it's, it does, to Matt, to your point, it self-fulfills exactly. And so much of the world we live in right now is being turned over to precisely and exactly that from the social media echo chambers that we create for ourselves by our own actions, right? It's only giving us what we're asking for. It's reflecting what we're telling it. We're not, it, it's not like someone somewhere's thinking this stuff up for you. You, you keep doing it and it says, oh, you like that? Clearly you do. Here, have more. It's really as if your, your evil aunt just decided you like you know gingerbread cookies and you're just going to keep getting them until you die of gingerbread poisoning. And, and this is one of the most topical, uh, controversial, uh, un, uh, as yet unsolvable issues that we find ourselves in right now. And, and we're only uh, three quarters of the way through January. But obviously, um, in the last uh, 16 days or so, there's been what I would consider a moment of reckoning for social media. Uh, it started, of course, with, with Twitter and Facebook uh, removing the privileges of Donald Trump's accounts. It moved on to uh, Shopify. Uh, uh, it moved on with uh, the PGA cancelling golf events. Uh, and it even went a little bit further when AWS, the cloud provider, took down the infrastructure for Parler, uh, effectively shutting the entire platform down. But I think the question here, and it's it's we could talk for hours on this, and I'm really keen to get your thoughts. And like I said, I know you talked about this on the TV today, but is legislation and government regulation now required on social media? And I think that's the first question. And, and have they gone too far? Have they abused their powers? Have they damaged freedom of speech? This is a huge area, a, a, a huge area for, for discussion. So what's your thinking on, on, on this? And by the way, I love politics, uh, Shelley. I've never, ever spoken about politics before on any podcast. Uh, but I think you know this is the first time I've seen technology and politics uh, smashed together in, in, in such a headline way. So what, what's your thinking on, on, on this uh, recent uh, turn of uh, events? Well... My thinking has evolved over the past five years. Years ago, I would have told you, hey, I got nothing to hide. What do I care? I will sacrifice my privacy for the quality of my internet enjoyment. I want the right content. I want the right person, right message, right time. Uh, my thinking has evolved because the people who are collecting this data are abusing it in ways most people don't understand. And over the last five years, I have had a, a bird's eye view uh, and then an up-close personal view of, of how this data is being collected, where it's being collected, how it's being used and, and abused. And I, I have to tell you that it is impossible for me to imagine the United States Congress having the intellectual framework or the policy framework to deal with this in any meaningful way. You hear antitrust, that is a 20th century tool. Social media is a 21st century problem. You hear section 230, I'm sorry, that's a 25 year old law. None of the things we're dealing with today were even possible back then. 
These are not laws that are built to predict the future. They were laws that were behind the times when they were fashioned. The idea that you could use a 20th century framework to solve a 21st century problem is just wrong, flat out wrong. So, you know, when you ask a, a serious question, is Facebook a publisher or a platform? What? That's like, stop it. It's like, that's the dumbest question you can ask because you're asking in the context of a policy from a quarter century ago. There's no, it's both, of course. If, is it a utility? I don't know. Do, do, does the government care what you say on your private telephone call? Does it say what you care what you say on a conference call? Does the phone company get to say what you're allowed to say? It's ridiculous to sit here and talk about social media in the context of antitrust laws, which are not for this. You break up Facebook, the only thing you're going to do, the only thing you're going to do is you're going to take data that's in one place now and you're going to put it in three or four places. It'll be that much harder to get a handle on. And you'll inspire a little creative competition between the front ends, which will make the data sets a little more incompatible and even less regulatable than if you just leave it alone. At least you know where it is right now. So that, that antitrust framework is just flat out wrong. You could argue there's an antitrust problem, but breaking up Facebook doesn't solve it. Breaking up Google doesn't solve it. Then you could say, okay, Section 230, we really have to get some understanding of if they're editorializing or if they're, allow if they're just a platform allowing the transmission of, of bits and bytes. All right, I'll accept that as, as, as a construct. What's the outcome you want to incentivize? Is it you don't like what is happening? Like it's not your ideology or your worldview? Or do you have a specific set of parameters for the outcome you want this policy to incentivize? I've yet to sit with anybody who could separate themselves, their own political point of view or their own worldview or their own ingrained bias and, and say, you know, in a perfect world, the outcome I want to incentivize is X. Therefore, we need to form these policies that would incentivize that outcome, either financially or legally, like force them because they'll go to jail if they don't do it or force them because they won't be profitable if they don't do it. But this is the set of outcomes. I need to put this in context because people are listening and they're going to think I'm, I'm not making great sense. There are 3.2-ish billion Facebook accounts right now. There are roughly 4 billion people on the internet out of the 7 billion of us who live on the earth, which means roughly one in, well, four people is not on Facebook who are online, or three out of four people online are on Facebook. That's practically the, that's the majority of the online world has a Facebook account. Facebook is a reflection of who we are. You don't like what you see on Facebook? Then be kinder today. Be nicer to someone today. Decide you're not going to rant like a lunatic. Decide you're not going to attack somebody you don't know just because of what you read that insulted you somehow. I, the only, and by the way, Facebook too, the most, and Twitter too, the most negative things I wrote all year are the ones that got the most attention from everybody. What a terrible world. What a terrible indictment that is. You need to be all the way on the wrong side of the universe to get anybody's attention. Horrifying. When we saw your um, CES Innovation Summit last week, there was Caroline Everson, uh, a VP from Facebook, in your summit. She was calling out for regulation on the social media platforms. You know, obviously a, a cry to the public sector to to come and help them. But is there a is there a private sector solution to the issues that we're we're talking about with social media? So, you know, there isn't, Matt, and I'll tell you why. You can't grade your own homework. 
right? You don't want to see that with advertising metrics. You don't want to see that ever. I'm going to argue that they almost, and this is almost, I don't think they care what the regulation is as long as they know what the regulation is. Because once you have a framework, you can learn to profit around it. You, you figure out how to do what you have to do based on the rules and regs that you're, that you're dealing with. Because the playing field is level and you're fine with it. By the way, one of the worst things about regulating Facebook or, or Twitter or Google or any of them is that that means Matt and Shelley can never, ever start a company that will ever get to be that size. Because whatever is good for them is going to be enforced on us too. And we, we will never be able to abuse the system the way, the way they abuse it now and the way they abused it then to get to power. Once they cut that off, they guarantee a bifurcated world. Super giants and little ones. It's, well, we'll break them up. It's like, no, you won't. They're smarter than you are. They're, unless they nationalize Google, search is going to be Google forever. Google's not, by the way, a search engine. Never has been. Google is an advertising optimization engine that's all other conditions are secondary. They only need to be good enough to get you to come back to search again. And the only reason Bing is is in existence is because Google doesn't feel like facing antitrust lawyers. Otherwise, Bing wouldn't be there. They could never compete. So Google's not in that. Should there be a search engine? Well, as it turns out, there are plenty of people who've tried to make search engines. They're not as good. And people won't use them. Is that Google's fault? So when I talked about the private sector involvement in this issue, um, before Shelley, it, it took me back to the end of 2019, I think it was. And it was uh, it was a question I asked Ludwig Siegel of The Economist. Smart guy. We were at Chetan Sharma's um, Mobile Future Forward event in Seattle. And there was a panel on cybersecurity with all the cybersecurity. The question I asked was that there is an, an almost a, a, a mutation of, of malice in the digital world, because cybersecurity always used to be about protecting systems because the cyber criminals were breaking into systems to steal data. You know, old fashioned, it was breaking into a bank to steal money. But that, that's essentially the cybersecurity firms are protecting against those hacks, people breaking in. But the, the, the situation here is the intentional weaponization of disinformation that is proliferated through these digital channels at, at the speed of light almost that is detrimental and harmful to society and, and it's like winston churchill said you know a lie can get halfway around the world before the truth uh, even has a chance to put its pants on but the world we're living in right now is a lie can touch every single individual before the truth has even woken up what is the solution that we face here? Because there is great harm that can be caused through these platforms. Um, I think, Matt, I, I, I don't know the answer to your question, but as I said, my thinking about social media has evolved over the last five years. And I'm at a point now uh, where I actually believe in my heart of hearts that social media is worse for humanity than the, whatever bad it does is worse than whatever good it does is good. These comfort zones that are created, they are capable of destroying this planet. And in a way, January 6th will go down in history as the largest mass hypnosis of human beings. I, I, can't, I, I can't imagine what I was hearing from people who were interviewed. 
funding them to get there, mobilizing that group and having that level of personality cult belief, if that is a function of the amplification of social media, we got to look really hard at social. And the private sector needs to look really hard at itself and say, what are we and are we not going to allow? And what will we and what will we not permit? And Matt, it is way easier said than done because um, if if you did, you were kind enough to say that you enjoyed our uh, Innovation Series Summit, the middle uh, speech by Barack Tarofsky of Google Translate, which is the largest AI project on the planet, Barack was trying to explain in the most technical way possible with no uh, political bent to it, just how hard it is to parse language and especially to translate it, but to just to parse up and understand what a person's really saying contextually, because they can look at a sentence now with Bert. They can, but you know, they used to be able to look at a couple of words. Now they can look at a whole sentence. Their goal is to be able to look at a paragraph. I mean, would be amazing to be able to get a five paragraph essay into one of these models and have it understand the true context. Because until you do that, if you have a sentence that says something like Hillary Rodham Clinton's emails uh, were, were deleted and both she and the DNC's emails were hacked. That's objectively false. It's misinformation. She deleted emails from her server and the DNC was hacked. If that's in a paragraph, that's in an essay about that's negative Trump, you got do you fix it? Is it a is it a a meaningless error and it doesn't really have any bearing nor does it really change the context of the paragraph it's in? It's just about hey there was an email problem or how do you understand the context of that that miscast sentence? And if you found that miscast sentence, would the computer correct it? Would it flag it and say this sentence is wrong? Those those are the problems that you're trying to solve with devices that don't understand context. There are people who wouldn't get that, let alone computers. Like training a model for that level of context is beyond our science. So, so to and a human, uh, a human that was doing it would bring their own confirmation bias as well as the rule base. I don't have the answer, but I do know what we're doing is certainly not working and it deserves some Socratic debate it deserves smart people to sit in a room, develop some theses, poke holes in them, try to come up with the best ideas, and then really determine like what I'd love to see intellectually honest outcomes that you'd look for. Forget about how you get there. What do you want? Because I, that I haven't seen yet. I have not seen anybody other than pie in the sky. Well, I want the world to be a better place. Okay. What does that mean? I think this is the big talking point. Um, Shelley, and, and of course, we're not going to have the answers on this podcast, and already we can yeah, see the complexity no um, involved here. And, and you know, I want to call, I want to call this episode the Roaring Twenties. Yeah. <laughs> right? I want to look forward with with some optimism, like I said before. Uh, and the reason why I say the Roaring Twenties because a hundred years ago, you know, when World War One was completed. And when the uh, the Spanish flu had, had finally gone, there was a period of innovation. There was a period of optimism. And some of the things we've talked about uh, already today, you know, from productivity uh, enhancements, the paradigm of business travel, uh, the uh, uh, proliferation of AI and efficiency. But are we on the cusp of a golden age? Is there room for optimism moving forward, starting from this year? I feel very optimistic for no reason at all. I am also scared of 
this moment in time, and I and I'm disappointed at a level that that it's hard to express. The American experiment was under siege last week. I am profoundly sad about it. I have many other emotions, uh, including anger, but I am profoundly sad. It's not that this is that we've always been one massive unified kumbaya country. We haven't been, but we've always believed in the rule of law, and we have always believed in the constitutional uh, republic that is outlined in the Constitution. And there were people beating people with American flags last week, and there was a Confederate flag in the rotunda of the capital of the United States. And anyone who's a student of history for that's ever been to a civics class, that's been to sixth grade in America, understands that, that is in, that's an enemy combatant flag being flown in the Capitol. I, I have to get over this moment of profound sadness. I, I'm not in the mood to hear about uniting the country right now. What used to hold us together was a piece of paper, the Constitution of the United States. This idea that a government of the people, by the people, and for the people could actually exist because it hadn't beforehand and it only has since. For 250 years, it's been here. So if we have leadership now that can bring us back to center, I believe that Americans will ultimately be Americans. And that is my optimism, that these people believe they're patriots. Hopefully, they'll pick up the Constitution, read it carefully, and they will be set straight by their own belief system. It may not happen. Uh, if it does, then I think we are we are on a path to where we need to be, which is... We've got technological advancements. We will have sociological advancements at the level that they are willing to be adopted. And life will go on. The water will run. Schools will be in session. Children will learn. But when we are through this, and I am hopeful that we will, I, I am absolutely hopeful that we will get through this. I, I believe that I, I, that's where my optimism truly comes from, that the process yielded a product that wasn't perfect but it was better than everything else on this whole planet. And one of the things I'll leave you with is you realize that there is no place on earth. There just isn't another place on earth like the United States of America with opportunities and the simple grace that we have here. We've lost our way for a minute. That doesn't dash my optimism. I am sad. I'm not going to say I'm not. And I'm angry. I'm not going to say I'm not. You probably hear it in my voice. And I'm not particularly angry at anybody. And I feel that America is weaker right now than it's ever been. But I am hopeful that we're going to see something else happen now. All technologists, and I consider myself one, are by nature optimists. We'll have a better day tomorrow because we'll be able to make the world a slightly better place, better education, better health, uh, better living conditions you know, for everybody, not just for some, for everybody, that we are a better planet, whatever that means to you, and give you the tools to, to solve the problems you want to solve. So that's hopefully what the, the new technologies that we are bringing out this year and next year will, will help empower that each person will be given the tools they need to take the problem they've identified as the thing that they need to solve that they're most passionate about, and they will have the tools to solve those problems with, and we'll keep trying to make better tools and deploy them better, and we'll see more extraordinary use of ordinary technology for the good of everyone. And the things that don't work, you know, uh, that's in the eye of the beholder. And we'll keep that discussion going as long as it's a civil, respectful discussion. There's nothing you can't solve. 
what a great start to the series. It's clear there is optimism as we move forward, but that optimism has to be considered cautiously. You know, we've discussed the new paradigms of the enterprise consumer, productivity enhancements delivered from artificial intelligence, the societal issues from social media. And I think Shelley gave us something, all of us, something to reflect on today. But when he said that social media reflects us, it's a mirror of us, it's giving us what we want. So if we want it to be better, we all have to try to be kinder on social media. It's clear the other issues of regulation and the internet are a long way from being solved. So we'll just have to wait. But we are on the cusp of a new golden age. We have progressed and we will continue to do so. The world had to wait 20 years before early trials of a polio vaccine and its first American license in 1955. Now only 12 months or so since the identification of COVID-19, several vaccines are being deployed around the globe. It's not just the tech sector that is undergoing rapid acceleration. And this is what has given us that light at the end of the tunnel. So as this podcast season progresses, we're all hoping that that light at the end of the tunnel gets brighter and brighter. And stay with us as we explore this. Please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite or usual podcast provider of choice and visit our website www.amdocs.com forward slash the great indoors this is matt roberts from amdocs in toronto we'll see you again on the next episode of the great indoors